All right, we're in this series on prayer. It's the questions on prayer. Maybe you could look at it a different way and call it, you know, questions about unanswered prayer. Because if prayer got answered every time, we just wouldn't have a series. We'd just go home and pray. All right? So we've been kind of going through this series. Last week, we left off on a cliffhanger. There was a lot of frustration in the room. And probably the reason for the frustration is because I was asking questions and I wasn't answering them. I was letting you answer. Part of the other frustration is because Jeremy was here. No, we can't talk about Jeremy. (laughs) We, it's not fair to talk about Jeremy when he's not here, but we will anyway. We will. No, we had some great comments back specifically from Philip and Jeremy that I'm going to address tonight. But let me dive right in. We're actually going to skip the normal review to catch people up. I'm just going to tell you, these are the questions we've already covered in our series. And they're pretty big questions if you see. Does prayer change God's mind? If God is sovereign, what good will it do to pray? Why pray if God already knows your needs, and does prayer change circumstances, or does it just change me? We've already covered most of that in the first three weeks, so we've hit these questions running. And last week, we moved forward and said, is there something that gives some power to prayer? We were focusing on three questions that we are going to go through in the next couple weeks, and we got through half of one of them. All right, Here's some of the questions we were going to ask. If your prayer is not answered, it's because you lack the faith. Maybe you've heard somebody say that. That's all it is. It's just because you lack the faith. Here's something else you might have heard. The greater number of people praying for something, the more likely it is that God will grant that. The third thing we were going to evaluate was some people just have the gift of intercession. And that means that they have a spiritual gift whereby God listens to them more when they're praying for other people. You might have heard these things in the church. And we are evaluating those. Here's where we got stuck last week in our big cliffhanger. We were evaluating this this statement. It's not a biblical statement. There's no verse in the Bible that says, if your prayer is not answered, it's because you lack the faith. Well, not exactly that quote. But we threw the statement up there, and we started looking through different things. And we got snagged on what the verses said, what the verses meant. So I want to kind of review those verses real fast to evaluate this question. So verse that we looked at was the one from Mark. That was the first part. If you look at Mark 11, we looked at verses 23 and 24. These are the statements that Jesus was making. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. He goes on in the next verse, say, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And that's the promise that all of us wish. Yes, I wish that was exactly all I needed to know. But in practice, that doesn't seem to come out the way I want it to. I'm not sure I see that. Here's the other verse we looked at. This one from John, chapter 14. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Last week when we were having the discussion, I referenced a verse, and I told you it's bad habit to just paraphrase a verse without citing it, so I've brought it this week. Here it is. This one's from Matthew 17. We were talking about, is faith a necessary element of some things? And we referenced how the disciples could not release the demon from one of these people. And they came to Jesus, and he was able to do it. Then they said to him in private, why couldn't we drive the demon out? Jesus' response to them was, because you have so little faith. 
I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. There's another statement, one more, that shows the strength of these words. Here's James, chapter 1, 6-7. He's talking about when you're praying, but when he asks, the person who's asking, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. Four very strong pronouncements about faith and receiving. And so the question stands. There it is. Is that a statement that's true based on those verses? Now, I went back and listened very carefully to what happened in the room last week to summarize, because I made a statement that I said, so far, nothing we had said last week really took this down. So I'm going to summarize what I kind of heard from you as the responses. Last week, you guys had a lot of responses. The room got pretty wild with comments. So let me summarize some of the comments that I thought I heard from you, and you could tell me if I didn't hear them right. Here's one of them. The verses are quoted out of context. I want to be very clear because we had a little bit of going back and forth about what that means. First, let's talk about what context means. What I'm referring to is literary context. Literary context just means that the verse needs to be read as a whole within the piece that it was spoken in. Now, when you look at something like the Gospels, that's usually a paragraph of thought, but it's not so much limited to a paragraph. Jesus' sayings were transmitted together in certain ways where a complete saying was transmitted, and the Gospel writers used that when they wrote their manuscripts. So we have to look at the complete thought. So that's what I mean by context, that we have to look around it. There are other lenses you could apply, but I'm talking specifically about context. So the best way to understand is a verse in context or not is to say, is that what he's trying to say? Or are we just pulling it completely out and using it for a different purpose? What are the words around it give us a clue? Here's, look at the verse we've already talked about. Take, for example, going back to why the disciples couldn't exercise this demon. If we just took the verse that says, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move, and it will do so. In context, it still has a pretty powerful meaning. So for those of you who are saying, I don't think that's what he means, in this context, it's what he's responding to them, like, hey, why couldn't we do what you could do? The response is, because if you had this much faith, you could do even greater things than that. The implication, of course, is you don't have this much faith. And at the same time, he's saying to them, if you had that much faith, you could do some amazing things, like move this mountain. Now, I know some of you are immediately saying, well, he's not telling us to move mountains. Like, he's not actually asking us to become like people who move dirt, earth, rock. Like, we're not to redo the geographic structure of our world, right? Right. So you might come to this thing that I heard come out of the discussion last week. Jesus is exaggerating. He's trying to make a point, or as we would say, he's using hyperbole. And you heard us debate that a little bit last week in here. Just because someone is speaking in a hyperbole does not mean it doesn't mean what it says. Again, he may not be asking us to move mountains left and right, but he's exaggerating to say that if you had this much faith, you could do some pretty amazing things. And that is in context and the hyperbole emphasizes that. 
Just because we see a literary device, we can't just say, hey, that just is crazy. We don't, can't rely on it. I mean, look, Jesus used a lot of things. He taught in parables, irony, metaphors. He used similes, poetry. He questioned the questioner. He used many methods. I've highlighted a book here, by the way, that you can look up if you want to look at all the different methods that Jesus used. It's Robert Stein's The Method and Message of Jesus' Teaching. It goes through a number of things and talks about when we encounter a specific type of, of language that Jesus used, like irony, what do we do with it? Hyperbole, what do we do with it? And here we see that he's using hyperbole maybe about moving a mountain into the sea in Mark 11 or telling the mountain to move and it will go over there. But that doesn't mean he's not saying that if we had that kind of faith, we could do amazing things. It's just emphasizing the point. So hyperbole doesn't just quite solve it, neither does context. Okay, another comment that came back, but to move mountains is a metaphor. Right, I agree with that. What does the metaphor mean? To people in the first century in Palestine, the metaphor was to do improbable or impossible things. So the fact that it's a metaphor still doesn't give us a good answer completely. Of course, he's using something that people would have recognized as a metaphor, move mountains. Again, he's not asking us, to change the topography of the world. But he is alluding to something that people would associate with impossible things. Like what? Well, like raise people from the dead, like cure the blind, like how about the, the miracle of leprosy? We don't always think of that, what that means in our mind. When Jesus heals a leper and says, go and show yourself clean. For someone to show themselves clean, that means they've been made whole. If they were a leper and they lost pieces of their body, to show themselves to somebody and to be made whole means that some, something pretty miraculous has happened. For them to say, hey, look, I'm clean and whole. To be certified ritually clean again. So Jesus did some pretty amazing things. I know we say Jesus, he can do those things, but we also looked at the acts of the apostles a little bit and said, sure, maybe they could too. We saw that Peter raised someone from the dead. There was a lot of miracles that went on in the early church. Okay, here was one other comment that came from the group. Fortunately, Jeremy's not here to defend himself on this one. There has never been a miracle since the time of the apostles. Now, in fairness, this one came out afterwards as we continue the discussion later, which kind of proves that if you argue long enough about a point, you kind of lose the original point, and then you begin arguing about new things that really are even worse than the one you started with, okay? It came along with one that did come out in the discussion Lazarus was not dead, he was only sleeping. And just because the comment was made in the room, I would just direct you to John 11, 11 and read a few more verses where Jesus does say the words, Lazarus was asleep, and the disciples come up to him and say, so if he's asleep, we can leave him alone? And Jesus goes, no, you dummies, I meant he's dead. All right, so it's actually in there, except the word dummies is not found in the Greek. That's more of my translation, but it is pretty much the way the passage goes. Look it up. So we heard all those comments, and they were great comments. There are a few more. In fairness, I'm reserving a few more that I actually think do solve part of the problem. So we're still with the same question. If your prayer is not answered, it's because you lack the faith. Anyone want to take this on one last time before I push forward a little bit? Ben. I think the question is worded a little bit finally. 
I mean, this question is saying that if it's not answered, the reason is solely because you don't have faith. And what's wrong with that? Because that's a very good observation. And I can see there may be a thousand other reasons why the prayer wasn't answered. Okay. And by the way, one thing that happened last week was a lot of you thought that I had worded the question and I had picked the verses. And actually, just so I can now reveal where I got these, no, I went to websites that talk about faith and prayer and pulled exactly what they said. I'm just presenting these as one of the main views in the church, and our job is to take those apart and find out if they work. Monique? I kind of feel like there's a thousand reasons why prayers don't get answered your way, even if you believe or, or whatnot. But we've kind of established it's a possibility. Like, it could be that things aren't happening because you didn't have enough faith. Because these clearly are examples of situations where certain things didn't come about because there was not enough faith present. So kind of like, hey, back to step one. So basically, uh, don't blame yourself, don't let other people be sensitive, you know, to the situations, because it's not their fault, you know, like, something doesn't happen, but then on the other hand, it could be that something didn't happen because we didn't have enough faith. Okay, so your answer is it could be one factor. All right, let me show you some, because I think you guys are, we're, we're starting to get closer to that place where after this group wrestles for a while, we start to come back together. Here's the way I would word this. Even if Jesus' words about faith are read in context. And I believe they are in context. That's what makes them such difficult words. It would be easy if we just dispense with them and go, ah, that's just taken out of context. No, they're actually in context. That's what gives us so much trouble. But even if they're in context, the statement, which is up there, is not an accurate statement of the totality of Jesus' teachings on the subject. It does not reflect the limits placed on the words elsewhere in Scripture and doesn't reflect the full counsel of Scripture in general. And let me show you some things that you might want to look at in the full counsel of Scripture. Here's some reasons your prayer might not be answered. And I kind of like the way that Ben went after it because it was like the way it's worded assumes that the reason it's not answered is because you lack faith and there may be other reasons. Here's some of those other reasons. And I've just picked some. There may be others. First reason. Your prayer may not be answered because it's against God's sovereign will. We actually identified that last week. And Philip said, yeah, there's limits though. You can't just ask for anything you want and believe it's going to happen and somehow shift everything that God has intended around. Now, we've already wrestled with this God changes mind and, and that's mind-boggling discussion we're not going back to. But assuming a sovereign will is fixed around an issue, no matter how much faith you have, it cannot go outside that sovereignty. We do not have the power to turn God into a subservient relationship that listens to our prayers, no matter how much faith we have. I've cited 1 John 5.14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Do you see the qualification? If we ask according to his will, yeah. So I feel like Part of what you're saying would be that there are many factors to answering prayers. One of them is faith, and in this, the verse you were showing us, faith was one of the bigger factors which was missing. That's why the prayer wasn't answered, and maybe in some other cases, faith wasn't the dominant factor why the prayer wasn't answered. I think that's a good way to go. You're going to see that I'm going to go through seven things. The last one is that you lack faith, so I'll tell you where we're going to end. Okay? But there's other factors of what I'm trying to point out that makes the statement, you can't just say, the only reason your prayer wasn't answered is because you lacked faith. 
which if you flip that around meant that if you just had faith, everything would go the way you wanted to. It's your fault that you can't get your prayers answered, which is how this statement is used in the church. It's terribly abusive, and it hurts people because they really earnestly try with their whole heart for something and they don't get it, and, and oftentimes the theology we live with is, huh, you just didn't have enough faith. Here's another one that might be a reason you didn't get your prayer answered. It's because it's against God's moral will. 1 John 3, 22. And remember, God's moral will is his commandments that are expressed as the way he wants us to be. The attitudes we're supposed to have. The things that are in scripture that are expressly given to us be this way. 1 John 3, 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Why? Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. So there's another reason that if you flip that one around, that maybe if we're not following his commandments, that we're not doing things that are pleasing in his sight, that that might be a reason. And again, all of these are, you might see the word I say, he may not. I'm not trying to dictate why he doesn't in a certain circumstance. I'm just saying that scripture gives us clues as to why in certain circumstances, we have scriptures that say that he will not under certain circumstances. Three, your prayer may not be answered because you are not abiding in Christ. John 15, 7, if you abide in me, there's the qualifier. If you abide in me and my word is in you, you will ask whatever you desire and it shall be done. So there's another, you can ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. But there's an important qualifier. If you abide in me. Other translations, you remain in me. And that's a very key description that he's giving in the greater context. What's the context of that verse? He's talking about being the vine, us being the branches. And apart from the vine, we cannot live. In fact, we'll be cast into the fire. But he's giving this additional promise as part of abiding in him. But there's the qualifier. So you may not have the prayer answered. The prayer may not be answered because we're not abiding in him. There's a qualifier that we have to pay attention to. Here's another one. And this one was brought up last week. Both Philip and Jeremy referenced the study we've been doing in Lamentations on Wednesday nights. 1 Peter 3.12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And in this epistle, the citation is to Psalm 34.12-16. It's a reference to the Old Testament. And there are similar references in Lamentations. There are similar references in Proverbs. What's the point? Your prayer may not be answered because of sin. We have indications in Scripture that God will turn and not hear certain prayers if they're offered from a certain type of sinful lifestyle, behavior, whatever it is. Unrepentant sin. Again, is that the reason? Can I say to you, hey, the reason your prayer isn't being answered is because you're a sinner. Well, we're all sinners. I mean, no prayer would be answered. Oh, no, it's because of the lifestyle you're living. I can't say that for sure. That's why I'm using the word may. And the only reason I get to use the word may is because Scripture gives us a clue that that might be a reason. That we've seen instances where prayers were not answered, where we have warnings like in 1 Peter that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, that he might actually turn his back and not hear their prayers. One more. Your prayer may not be answered because of improper motives. We cited this verse last week. Soren brought up the idea that maybe, maybe there's like a motive thing somewhere. Yes, we cited James 4.3. 
When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, I told you last week, even as we read this one, the context is asking for material wealth and material subsidy. So maybe this one doesn't apply in every circumstance. I mean, you can't just extrapolate, go, hey, there's one that says motive, so we can use it in every circumstance. We have to be careful. If we're going to watch the context, we have to watch it. But this one does seem to say that if you have the wrong motives, you won't get what you're asking for. So that may be another reason you're not getting your prayer answered. Six, your prayer may not be answered because of issues of forgiveness. You know, in that Mark 11 passage that we've been looking at so carefully, one more verse, which is connected. It's connected in one thought. So it's kind of an awkward thing to all of a sudden move into this statement about prayer. So they must be one thought. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you. There's another part in Scripture where it says, if you're standing at the altar ready to offer your sacrifices and you remember that you have something against your brother, leave your sacrifice right there and go and seek forgiveness and reconciliation. So maybe one of the reasons that our prayers are hindered is because we are not in a place where we are forgiven or we have forgiven someone else. So we've looked at six ways, six reasons that your prayer may not be answered. So the seventh one is, your prayer may not be answered because of lack of faith. That's where Monique was saying we come right back to the thing. But it's one reason out of seven, and I think there's more. These are seven that I was able to look up after doing research and reading different scriptures. There may be a few more. But at least it shows us that that statement cannot be right because it oversimplifies the situation and focuses on one factor and one factor only. Philip. Given that that is just one of the reasons, but still what would you, how would you define that as what aspect of faith? Even like, like as Jill pointed out last week, the idea of like believing the actuality of something happening as opposed to believing the potentiality of something happening. Like if I'd known you were going to ask me that question, I would have circled it. And then I would have asked this question. So which one are we looking for? Are we talking about faith that what you pray will happen? Like, like that kind of faith? Or are we talking about faith in God? It is nature, it is power, it is ability. Which one are we talking about? And I, I, wanna, I wish I could tell you I have a definitive answer, but here's my answer. I've done a lot of looking around, and of course, the reason I can't give you a definitive answer is because if you go to all the sites of people who believe in faith healing and faith is everything, they're going to tell you that you have to do that. You have to name it and claim it and believe it and be convinced of it, and if there's, an, if there's just a little bit of doubt, it's, it's going to get away from you. So you spend your time running on this treadmill of faith trying to just keep up so that you can get it. But I actually believe it's the second one. I believe it's faith in God and his nature and his ability and his power. Because if you look at Mark 11 very carefully, it says if you tell this mountain to move into the sea and have faith and do not doubt, one of the key words is there, it will be done for you. The power comes from the Lord. It's the Lord's power. 
The other reason I think that way is because of Jesus' encounter with the centurion. When the centurion says, I'm not worthy that you should come to my house, but I'm a person under authority. You just say the word and it will be done. And that's what impressed Jesus. That was the faith that impressed him. He said, I haven't seen faith like this in Israel. Faith like what? That he would just believe that Jesus had the power if he just said it, it would happen. Not that the centurion had to have the faith to go, I believe it's going to happen. Come on, Lord, it's going to happen. Like, start jumping up and down with me. It's going to happen, right? That isn't the faith that Jesus was so amazed by. It was the faith that he knew that Jesus had authority. And all he needed to do was speak the words, and that would be enough. So in those cases, I think it's the second one. It's my view. You can have a different one. You can even push back and say, no, we need to believe that it will happen. I, I actually believe in some cases that may be true. I mean, you could say, you could make an argument that if you don't believe it's going to happen, then you're really doubting God's ability to make it happen. I know we could make those kinds of arguments all night, but in the end, I'm staking, I think, on believing in God. It's him. He's the one that can do it. And if you look carefully, even those verses about abiding and those kind of verses in John, like it's talking about the power of God as we remain in him. How much faith. You know, one of the great things about Jesus' verse about the mustard seed is he seems to say pretty clearly, it doesn't take a lot. One of the comments that came out of last week was Jeremy saying that it's impossible to put on a scale, I have more faith, you have less faith. You know, I kind of agree with that comment because we tend to get into that thing if you just had more faith. Jesus seems to imply that, you know, a mustard seed was very tiny. That's why I used the example. If you had the faith of a mustard seed, so it doesn't take a lot of faith. It takes just a little bit of faith. But notice that when he was talking to the disciples, the reason he used a mustard seed was to show them that they didn't even have that much. So that's got to mean something to us. If people who are walking around watching Jesus do amazing things, who themselves have at times done amazing things, couldn't muster up that much faith, maybe that's a sizable amount for some of us, even for them but that it's not like you have to be, maybe you've heard this like a giant in the faith, or you've got to have all this, you know, like these words we make up that are not in the Bible. But then we burden them with everybody, we pass them around, everybody just keeps passing them around, and pretty soon they're like scripture, you know, but nobody can find them. Yeah. Um, remember the story with the old lady who touched the garment in the crowd of Jesus, and Jesus was like, who touched me? And he says that, you know, your faith has made you well. Um, like she believed that, you know, that Jesus was going to heal her. And, you know, and Jesus didn't really have to do anything. Like, it was her that grabbed, you know. And so, I mean, it, it kind of makes me question, like, do we even really believe Jesus can even heal us? Do we believe that he can actually do anything? Because we're so, like, stuck in a materialistic world that, like, we struggle with just, like, these answers of faith. Or, like, how do you go beyond, like, the fundamental faith questions to really get to that point of actually believing that God can do a work in our lives, you know? I'm so glad you asked that question because we're going to actually show a short clip in a minute, not now, but in about five minutes, that is actually going to take that question head on. And I'm going to leave the discussion off by showing that at the end because I think it's going to, if right now we're feeling like we're getting somewhere, it's going to undo it all, (laughs) which is just what this group is about. So let me press forward and do a couple more points real fast. Look, prayer is not a formula. There's too many things that go on in our experience that prove that. I mean, look at the problems of unprayed blessings. I mean, God blesses people who don't even pray. 
We get blessed for things we didn't even pray for. Things happen in our lives that we didn't even ask for. So it can't be that like just praying in faith is the formula because we see that in our world all the time. How about this one? Think about unwise prayers. Think about all the things that you've prayed for in the past that were just totally ridiculous. Think of other things that people have prayed for that are ridiculous. I know we could like use the example of like Jim Carrey in that movie where he just like says yes to all the prayers all at once, you know? I mean, there's so many crazy things that people pray for. So that doesn't work as a formula. How about like contradictory prayers? My favorite one is thinking of two football teams at Christian colleges in the locker room kneeling, both praying that they're going to win the game. We all know like, you know, football teams at Christian colleges are weak anyway, but they still want to win, right? They still want to win games. But like, they're both like, Lord, let us win. Let us win. Let us win. I mean, no matter how weak you are, somebody's got to win the game, right? I mean, what does God do in that case? I mean, all the faith in the world, we're going to win, we're going to win. No, we're going to win. Like, what does God do in that case? Have we created this crazy theology of just thinking, yeah, if I have faith, we'll win the football game. What about them? Well, they just lack the faith. That's why they lost. The problem of inconsistent results, which is the one we struggle with the most. We've tried it. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't. Sometimes we believed it with all our heart and still didn't happen. It's not a formula. I think I've made that case pretty strongly at this point. Let me press with two more things real quickly that people say about the power of prayer that I want to evaluate. The more people agree about a particular prayer, the more likely it's going to come about. The number of people. Here's the verse. Matthew 18. Starting in verse 18. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything that you ask for, it will be done by your Father in heaven. Whatever you agree. You ever heard this, like, let's agree together in prayer? People get together and they go, yes, mm, yes, yes, right? So, like, if you agree, like, you put a seal on it, right? If we get together and have people do it, then that makes it happen. Isn't that what this verse is saying? I mean, I'm not making it up. Well-intentioned Christians read this and go, let's get a group together. It's what it says. What's the problem with taking this verse and saying that? Anyone know what the context of this verse is? Yeah. Somebody's in sin. Yeah. The verses right before it are talking about if there's a brother in the church who sins, you go to him, and if he still doesn't listen to him, then you go with two more witnesses, and if he still doesn't listen, then you bring him before the elders of the church. Then these words are spoken. These words are about the kind of ecclesiastical issues that arise in a church, they're about this kind of legislation in a church about how you deal with what is in the bounds and what is out of the bounds. And Jesus trying to assure the church that they could make these decisions without fear was saying that what you agree upon will be the way it is. In fact, there's another verse that sounds just like it. Just a few chapters earlier, Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Who's he speaking to this time? He's speaking to Peter. Right after he says, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom. You're the rock. Your new name is Peter. And you, whatever you, Peter, bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Again, what's the context? He's saying, you're going to have power over the church, Peter. Some people say it's not Peter, it's you like the church, because that makes him like the Pope or something. Okay, we'll slide more to a little bit of a Protestant interpretation. 
Whatever it means, it doesn't mean that we just get to sit around and if we say yes in a prayer session, that it will happen. In fact, if you look at the Greek, there's this weird language in here. It says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound. It's awkward language, but it implies that it's already been bound in heaven. It's just been told to you so that you would bind it on earth through the Spirit. It's not the other way around. Like we think of it like if we say it, then it's going to happen. It's actually like this is the way it should happen, and it's been told to you so that you will say it. Yeah. So the idea of praying with or for people and that being like a powerful thing or a supportive thing or a communal thing, like, then what's that all about? Like basically it doesn't matter? I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm saying that you can't turn it into a formula where we say, hey, there's a verse that says if we agree, it's going to happen, so let's get together and agree. Because then God's got to do it. That's not what this verse is about. First of all, neither of these verses, they're both about church structure and church issues. They're not even directly about praying for things we want. So you can't even make these verses really about intercessory prayer. They're really more about how the church will administer itself. So I guess my question is there's no more power in you praying for something by yourself and keeping it to yourself than in telling other people to help support you and pray for it as well? Well, in response to that, because like, I was thinking the same thing, that, that that statement is more just something we're trying to refute, but like that right. being refuted and doesn't mean that like, communal prayer or group prayer doesn't lose its value, whatever that is. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I'm just trying to find what that is. Because I mean, I think I agree. I, I think that might be another question. Hopefully we'll... We will cover the question of communal prayer because a number of you asked, like, why pray out loud? Why pray in groups? And there are other reasons. But the point here is, it's not, because if we agree, like, blink, that's it. It's locked in, man. We agreed. I said yes during a prayer when somebody was praying, like, that's it. I gave my thing. And you'll hear that all the time. You know, now, now you'll feel all weird every time somebody does that. You'll be, like, in a group going, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, didn't mean to ruin for you. Okay, last one real fast. Does the gift of intercession mean that you have some sort of special ability to intercede for other people? I got this quote from one of the most popular spiritual gift inventories. And they said, quote, you know, just so you know, our research is solid. We're going right to the source, like Geraldo Rivera. <laughs> the gift of intercession is the special ability that God gives to certain members of the body of Christ to pray for extended periods of time on a regular basis to see frequent and specific answers to their prayers to a much greater degree than that which is expected of the average Christian. So it's this part that I want to focus on. To a much greater degree than that which is expected of the average Christian. And the part like to see frequent and specific answers to their prayers. They cited all of the verses you see down there. I looked up all of the verses that are down there and none of them said that. So in those Verses, which you can look up if you want, like Luke 22, Acts 12, Colossians 1, Colossians 4, Timothy 2, James 5, all those chapters, they had examples of people praying for other people. But it never made these statements that they're somehow, they saw more frequent answers, that they had a greater degree of what was expected. There was no, there was just like, hey, so-and-so is praying for you. Good. So, that's a popular notion that's drifted into our language of prayer that doesn't seem to find any root, at least here. Now, remember, when we talked about spiritual gifts in that series, there's a new view in the church that's coming about spiritual gifts, which is in part that the spiritual gifts give people ministries. 
That may mean that if you have the spiritual gift of intercessions, your ministry is to intercede for others. That's part of the way you're wired by the spirit for the good of the body. So you should use that gift and you should have that ministry. I just didn't see anything in there that said that you'll have some sort of more frequent answers or that you'll have a greater expectation as a result of it. I think that's just a ministry you'd have. So where does that bring us? Before I take on Ryan's question about the practicality of all this, if we're looking for a formula, it's just not there. You know, I, I cited up here Job's friends. The book of Job, they're all circled around him, trying to explain to him why this is happening to him. The great thing about that book is because we are seeing the whole scene. We get to see the backdrop of what's going on with the Lord, what's going on with Satan in the background. We're watching everything. We get to go backstage. We also get to laugh at all the explanations his friends come up with because we know they're wrong. But how often do we sound like them too? Hey, the reason is because of this. Hey, the reason is because of that. That's the reason. And in that book, we get a great behind-the-curtain view to see how silly most of our reasons in this life are when, if we could see the real truth of what was going on. So we shouldn't be like that. We shouldn't... And I told you last week, I don't think anybody in this room does this, where you walk up to somebody who's had a crushing blow in their life and their faith and their prayer life and go, hey, maybe if you just had more faith. I don't think any of us are on that boat, right? But I hear it. And if you hear it and you want to be able to say to somebody, hey, that might not be true... We had to articulate good reasons why, to try to talk them out of that position. You know, we always want an answer. This last part up here I've cited is John 9, verses 1 through 3. It's the story of when Jesus and disciples were walking and they saw a blind man who had been blind from birth. His disciples asked him, who sinned, this man or his parents? They just wanted an answer. Like they, they want everything to fit nice and neat. That's the way we want formulas. Like, tell me who sinned. I mean, there was this belief, you guys know, you've heard it before in the first century, that you know, these kinds of things like physical ailments and, and kind of disabilities were given because of people's sin in their life. So they're saying, okay, we assume that it's because of sin. Just we're trying to figure out which one, Lord. Was it his parents or was it his sin? Why was he born blind? And Jesus responded, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. This happens so the work of God might be displayed in his life. It's not because of some formula we want to put onto something. That just happens sometimes. Now, let's undo it a little bit. Ryan's question is really probing because it comes down to the practicality, like where the rubber meets the road for most of us. The video I'm about to show you is from a website called Why God Doesn't Heal Amputees. It's a site that's been cited by some of the new atheists in their books and in their writings. And it clearly is a very strong atheist position. I struggled for a while to even show this, but you know what? One of the things that we do in this group is we know that what's going on out there affects our lives. So why hide from it? Let's take it head on. I'd like to rate this video as mature, like M, for mature Christians, because it does kind of shake you down to your core a little bit when you watch it. It asks some pretty probing questions, and I'd like you now that we've covered all of this together, to see how you would respond to this video. Because the verses that are cited here are a couple of them that we just looked at, that they use to show why God can't exist, why God doesn't answer prayer. 
And it's very important, I think, and I'll explain a little bit next time we get together and we'll pick it up where this leaves off. But what I'd like you to do is tonight when we go out, hang out and eat, we could talk about this video. But I want to leave it as something that you have a little bit of homework to do. How would you respond to this? Because many of your friends might stumble on this, find this, and ask you about it. Maybe you yourself are struggling with, yeah, all of this is great, interesting stuff. Now tell me why my prayers always end up the same way, which I don't get anything. Watch this and let's see if we can think about it together tonight.